All right, well, I'm going to preach, but I don't have my Bible. I probably need my Bible. I left it down there on the front row. So why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to start there in just a minute as we continue through this 31-day prayer journey. But uh, that's a dear story to my heart. And thank you, Porter family, for sharing that. And it is so encouraging to see what God continues to do in the life of His church when we pray. So we have set aside the first 31 days of the year to say, Lord, the whole year is yours, it's all yours, but we're going to set aside the first 31 days in fervent prayer. We believe there's an intimacy to our relationship with God that only comes as we fervently, Bible-saturated, Spirit-led, persistently pray. And we also are convinced that there is an impact out of your life, an overflow of your life and my life that only comes as we pray, as we ask God to do things from His Word, and we ask God to do things that only He can do, and we're praying that for us as a church family this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and I just want to ask you a question this morning for you personally as we kind of set the stage of where we're going with the book of Nehemiah, and then we're going to have a season of prayer again at the end of our service this morning. I just want you to answer this in your own heart and in your own mind this morning. Has there ever become, has there ever been a situation, or have you personally ever become aware of a situation that so gripped your heart, or a burden that you became so uh, aware of that you said to yourself, I have got to do something about that. Has there ever been something that God's made you aware of, a, a need or an individual or a family or a situation, and maybe you've, you've seen it from a distance or maybe you're in the middle of it and in your mind and your heart, you're not just aware of it, you're not just thinking, oh, I hope somebody does something. It becomes a burden that so grips your heart, you are thinking in yourself, I must do something about it. I pray as God's people, that's routine. And as we saturate our lives with the Word of God, and we are salt and light in this world, and we see situations, and we see needs, and we know individuals, there are some things that so capture our heart, we say to ourselves, I've got to do something. So the book of Nehemiah is basically that. Uh, Nehemiah is a Jewish boy. Uh, Nehemiah is a Jew who has been exiled, or actually his family before him was exiled from Jerusalem, from Judah to Babylon, now Persia. He was taken there as his homeland was overthrown by the Babylonians. His city of Jerusalem was left desolate. His ancestors were taken to Babylon. Babylon was overthrown by Persia. And now this young man here in the nation of Persia is serving the king. God's given him a prominent position. He is the cupbearer to the king. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And over the years surrounding the story of Nehemiah, God has raised up different men and women to leave Persia. They've been given permission. They've returned the 900-mile journey from what is modern-day Iran back to Israel, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and try to rebuild the city that was left desolate. Now, Nehemiah has stayed back in Persia 
for different reasons. And the story begins in Nehemiah chapter 1. He gets some news from Jerusalem that's not good news. And the news he gets is one of those things that he becomes aware of and it immediately grips his heart. It becomes a burden for him. As if to say, like we talked about earlier, I must do something about this. So we're going to walk through Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to hit a few verses in chapter 2 and then have a season of focused prayer at the end. So why don't you follow with me as I read. I'm going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. There's a paper copy of a Bible in front of you. If you need a copy, uh, you can follow along on the app or the words will be up on the screen for you. Nehemiah chapter 1 says this. Now, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, we're basically reading his journal. As Nehemiah keeps a journal of the events that take place, he says in verse 1, Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, the 20th year of the king, that I was in Susa, the citadel or the capital. So again, that's a lot of detail, but Nehemiah says, I was in Susa, that's the capital of Persia, and here's what happened. That Hanani, one of my brothers, evidently one of his blood brothers had left Susa earlier, had gone to Jerusalem with one of these groups that had left, and now is returning back to Susa with the report. says, he came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now let me quickly put this in context. A group comes from home. Nehemiah says, give me the lowdown. How are the exiles that are still there? Or how are the people that are still there that survived the captivity? What's the status of the city? In general, how's everything going? Right? See what happens. Verse 3. And they said to me, The remnant that is there in the province, Israel was, Judah was considered a province of Persia, who had survived the exile. Here's the situation they are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. By fire. Now stop right there. We read that and it may not quite capture our hearts, but I want you to know as Nehemiah heard this report, his heart began to melt. It's one of those deals that I described earlier. He's now aware of a situation and in his heart he is grieved, he is broken, and he's heavily burdened. Here's what basically the report was. The people are in great distress. The people are in great fear from the people who are around them. They're in great trouble because no one is caring for their welfare. Their enemies outnumber their friends. And on top of all that, the wall has not been repaired. Now in our day, we don't think much about a city having a wall. But in that day, a city was not even considered a true city without a wall. The status of a city was determined by the, the, the might of that wall. A city, and here's what you got to get. A city without a wall in that day was vulnerable. A city without a wall in that day was looked down upon. They were scorned. They were made fun of. They were looked upon with shame. They were extremely vulnerable to the enemy. 
There are so many parallels in the book of Nehemiah to the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't even begin to hit them all. This is no different than the Lord Jesus Christ looking over Jerusalem in his day and saying, they are sheep, they are like sheep without a shepherd, they are distressed and downtrodden, they are broken, and Jesus grieved over the people, not over a physical wall, over their soul. And Nehemiah hears, and he hears the people are vulnerable, The people are hurt. The wall must be built. There are so many enemies. There's nobody there leading them. They have no encouragement. I've got to do something. Now what's amazing here, you've got to get this, Nehemiah is 900 miles away. Nehemiah has a prominent position in the court of the king. If you will, Nehemiah sits at the right hand of the king as the cupbearer. He doesn't have to do this. No one is telling him to do this. But he knows the promises of God. He knows the significance of God's people. And he hears the situation and here's what he says. I have got to do something. Let's keep reading. Verse 4 says, And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is deeply burdened. Sometimes we're made aware of things and sometimes things grab our attention. I mean, we live in a world that is full of information flow. You're hit with a text or you're hit with a notification or we hear something in the news. This is not simply I'm now aware of something. In his heart, it has gone from awareness to now concern, now to deep burden. So what do we do with that? As a people of God, what do you do with that? What do I do with that? Nehemiah, what do you do with that? Because sometimes, I'll be honest, the burdens are so great and the needs can be so great, we can just crumble in paralysis and say, Lord, what can I do? This is way too big of a situation. There's nothing I can do about it. That's not how Nehemiah responds. Let me give you a few truths as we walk through this about prayer. I'm going to give you six of them about effective prayer. Here's number one. Effective prayer often begins with a burden not just a concern not just an awareness but something that through his word God lets us see the situation differently the spirit of God allows us to see it differently and in our minds we say over and over I've got to do something about this that's where Nehemiah is his prayer begins with a deep deep burden Nehemiah, how do you respond? Let's look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven. That's a beautiful, beautiful prayer here because I'll explain it why it's so important in a minute. Just, just kind of hang with me. Verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and the awesome God who keeps covenant, meaning I keep my promise, is steadfast love, means my love doesn't change, and those who love him, to those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open and hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing their sins, the people of Israel. We have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. I'll stop right there. Hugely practical for you and me. Nehemiah has a massive burden. It could absolutely crumble him when he hears how serious the situation is. But here's what Nehemiah does. And here's your truth number two about prayer. Effective prayer is centered on the greatness of God. 
The first thing Nehemiah does is Nehemiah is so burdened, Nehemiah is so heavy over the situation, whatever it is, but here it's that situation in Jerusalem, and he takes it to God, and the first thing he says is not, oh, the situation is impossible, oh, the situation, there's no no way anything can change. The first thing he does is, I love this, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. See, Nehemiah's prayer life is characterized by a massive view of who God is. And he takes his burden and his situation believing. This is huge. Say with me. Believing that God was bigger than the situation. And believing that... here's, Here's a great prayer for you. God, you are God and I am not. How about that one? God, it is beyond my control. God, you've put this burden in my heart. But I've got to be reminded, and I'm going to remind myself in prayer over the Scriptures. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, you are bigger than the situation I face. See that? Isn't that helpful? Nehemiah continues on. He prays this incredibly God-centered prayer. Prayer truth number three, effective prayer is honest before God. Verse 6, the Bible says, Nehemiah was confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. In this attitude of prayer, in this posture of prayer, Nehemiah realizes, hey, the reason, the reason the situation is as it is is because of the sin of the people. And he didn't point the finger and he said, well, those people or, or those people's sin. I mean, God, God could put a burden on you about something in society and we could easily lapse back into judgmentalism and say, well, the only reason this is happening is the sin of the people. Listen, the world is in the shape it's in because of our sin. <laughs> and Nehemiah says, the reason this situation exists is because of the sin, including my own. It's the spirit of repentance And it's the spirit of confession owed to you and me and me included to say, Lord, let a posture of repentance and confession be a continual posture before you in prayer. Sometimes what God wants to do in our heart is He reveals a situation to us, whatever it may be, is He wants the Spirit of God is working in you and me to reveal us to us. (laughs) Nehemiah says, oh, Lord, God of heaven, I I confess my own sin. I confess my own brokenness. Let repentance and confession be a continual attitude in our posture of prayer. So here's Nehemiah. He continues with this heavy burden, and he's he's fasting and praying for days, the Bible says. And then you come to verse 8, and he continues this amazing prayer. He says, remember the word. He's talking to God, and he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying... Now what Nehemiah is going to do is Nehemiah is going to pray scripture. The burden that Nehemiah has ultimately comes out of what he knows of God's promise. God promised to his people back in the days of Moses. Okay, if you're, you're faithful to the covenant, there's, there's blessings. But if you're unfaithful, I, I will scatter you among the nations. And that's exactly what happened. He says, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them... Though you are outcasts in the othermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So you know what Nehemiah is praying? 
great application for you and me. Nehemiah is simply praying the promises of God's word. Number four, effective prayer is saturated with scripture. Nehemiah is saying, okay, God, I understand the situation because I know what the word says. I know the promise that you made to Moses, and I know what you said to your people, and I also know if your people will turn in faith and repentance, then you'll bring them back to Jerusalem, you'll bring them back to Judah. So God, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to trust you are a promise-keeping God. Bringing in me very practically, one of the greatest things for our prayer life, our communion with God, is to simply open the Word of God and to cry out to Him from His promises in Scripture. Oh, it is so energizing. To our lives of prayer. That's what Nehemiah does. His prayer is saturated with Scripture. Quickly read on verse 11. I'll skip over a few verses for sake of time. So he's going to get very specific here, and now he's going to hone in on the specific prayer that he's going to ask of the Lord. He's praised and he's recognized God's greatness. He's confessed. He's been honest about his own sin. Then you get to verse 11. Oh Lord. Let your servant, or let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name. Now, hang with me. Verse 11. And give success to your servant today. He's going to get very specific, and he says, And grant him, talking of himself, grant Nehemiah mercy in the sight of this man. Now stop right there. Here's what he's saying. He's putting the pieces together in his mind and he's realizing, okay, God, here's your promise. Here's what you want to do in the lives of the people of Judah. Here's what you want to do in Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, you have given me an audience with the most powerful man on the planet, King Artaxerxes. And he says, Lord, every day I go in and I serve before this man. Will you give me favor with the king? (laughs) Because in those days, by the way, you didn't speak to the king unless the king spoke to you. And Nehemiah's job was not necessarily a job that everybody stood in line to get, right? Read on the end of verse 11 says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. You know what that is? The cupbearer, if you don't know, in those days, everybody wanted to kill the king. There were so many threats on the king. Somebody had to taste his food. Somebody had to drink his wine. Before he tasted it, make sure somebody hadn't poisoned him. So that's what Nehemiah gets to do. He gets to be faced with death every day standing before the king. Not a lot of people standing in line for that job. But, listen, over time, the king begins to trust his cupbearer. And over time, the king begins to build a relationship with his cupbearer. And that's exactly what happens between this most powerful man in the world at that time and little old Nehemiah, who's just a cupbearer. And Nehemiah says, wait a minute, watch this, wait a minute. Lord, maybe. You have placed me in this situation, in this place, for such a time as this. Oh God, give me favor with this king. And that's exactly what happens. Truth number five, as we talk about effective prayer, is this. Effective prayer is very specific. Nehemiah says, Lord, you've got to open the heart of the king. God, I know what I want to do. I know I want to be able to go back to Jerusalem. I know I want to do something. I'm nothing. I'm a cupbearer to the king. I'm faced with death every day. I have no authority. I have no power. I have no significance. I'm just a cupbearer to the king. Lord, give me favor with this man. Now, what happens after that is probably one of the least 
positive things about prayer that we just simply do not like. From the end of chapter 1 to chapter 2 is nothing but waiting and praying. Because for a while, you know what happens? Nothing. (laughs) Nehemiah continues to pray, and Nehemiah continues to wait, and he trusts the Lord to do something only the Lord can do. Truth number six in effective prayer is this. Effective prayer actively waits. He's waiting. He's trusting. Now what we know during that time is Nehemiah begins to plan And Nehemiah begins to trust that, Lord, I've asked this of you. I'm going to trust this of you. And in his mind, he begins to make plans. And he prepares for the moment when the Lord is going to open the door and give him an audience and a word with the king. Prayer waits, but prayer actively waits. Four months, Nehemiah waits. Four months, Nehemiah prays. Then you come to chapter 2, and let's quickly follow the story and see the outcome and then make some applications. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and you say, okay, what does all that mean? It means four months later. Say, my Bible doesn't say that. Trust me. Four months later, that's what it means. So he's been waiting. When wine was before him, meaning I'm going through my daily, I'm doing what I do every day. I'm the cupbearer. I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, end of verse 1. Now, I had not been sad in the king's presence. What does that mean? Well, in that day, if you served in the king's court, it was very important to keep a cheery countenance, a joy-filled countenance, because the king and everyone in his court represented him. So if you walk around all glum and you walk around down in the dumps, the king says, well, get him out of my court, off of his head. I want somebody happy serving in my court. Well, Nehemiah was heavy. So this day, his heaviness of heart overtakes him, and he comes in before the king. And the king said to me, verse 2, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I don't know how the king's going to respond. He could say, off with your head. He could say, out of my court, because I've got this glum look on my face. Verse 3, And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lie in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Stop right there. Nehemiah goes for it. (laughs) Nehemiah gets a little opening. The king says, what's wrong with you, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, okay, this might be my chance. I'm going to go for it. And he says, why would I not be sad when the city where I'm from lies desolate and my people lie in ruins? Now, What's happened next is like an unfolding reality TV show. He doesn't know how the king's going to respond. The king could ignore him. The king could throw him out of his presence. He's gone for it. What's going to happen? Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Now you can't read, you can't get it here from the, the words on a page, but here's what goes on. The king says, okay, Nehemiah, what do you want me to do for you? And in Nehemiah's heart, he's going, And at the end of the verse, verse 4, he says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. You know what that's called? That's called a flare prayer. You know what a flare prayer is? Lord, I'm about to step into this interview. God, help me. 
God, I'm about to stand up and give this speech. Or, Lord, I'm about to share the, my faith with this person. Lord, help me. This is a flare prayer. God, help me. That's the moment of truth. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, then will you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild the city? This is his moment of truth. He's been praying for four months. The king says, what do you want me to do for you, Nehemiah? He says, would you send me back to Judah? Would you send me to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and serve my people? I have such a great burden. Verse 6. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him. It's interesting that they throw the, the Bible puts that in there. Maybe he's looking all tough, and he looks over at his wife, and his wife goes, honey, come on. And I don't know how it plays out here, but it's important enough for the Bible to say, the queen was sitting beside the king. And the king said to me, I love this, how long are you going to be gone and when will you return? And Nehemiah is standing before the king, and his heart almost explodes. This is a burden in his life that he's been praying for for four months. The door is now open. The end of verse 6 says, So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Nehemiah had planned. He knew his answer. He was ready. Watch this. He was ready for when God answered his prayer. He had prayed, and he had waited, and he had trusted. And now the door flings itself wide open, and Nehemiah is ready when God answers his prayer. Verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. Now, I encourage you to read the rest of this story on your own. For time's sake, we're not going to take time to do it this morning, but I am going to tell you how it turned out very quickly. Nehemiah receives permission. God answers his prayer. He gives him favor with this king. Nehemiah leaves Susa. He travels the 900-mile journey to Jerusalem. He faces opposition after opposition after opposition. I will point out one verse. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10 says, When he arrived there, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Translation. When you are walking in the leading of the Lord and God opens doors and God is answering prayers, you're still going to face opposition. And here is this Christ-like figure leaving the place of royalty, leaving the right hand of the king, going into the place where his people were, and someone there is saying, I'm not happy about this because someone is coming for the welfare of God's people. Even when God is moving and working, there is still opposition you will face. You can read on up to chapter 6. I'll conclude with this. Weeks go by, weeks go by. Nehemiah gets there. He assesses the situation. Nehemiah is a man of prayer throughout this entire process. And then you get to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So, after all these weeks, the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul, 52 days. So from the time they began, 52 days later, God answers the prayer, God continues to provide, and the wall of Jerusalem is built by Nehemiah. Verse 16 of chapter 6, When all the enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence and recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And a beautiful picture. 
So you say, okay, Pastor Mike, I get that story. That's an amazing story of truth. What does that have to do with you? And what does that have to do with me? And what does that have to do with us as a church? Here's a man who is walking with God. Here's a man who's saturated with the Word of God. And God places a burden in his heart. God, God burdens his heart for something that's out of his control. He can't do anything about it. And then God calls him to pray. And he prays, and he prays, and he waits, and he prays. And God opens a door that only God could open. And now here we are, 2,500 years later, reading not about the exploits of Nehemiah, but watch this, about the faithfulness of God. Because you have to know God is one that works through his people. God is one that works through the prayers of his people. And let's claim again, James chapter 5, the effective prayers of a righteous man or woman accomplish much. What's your burden? What is it in your life you'd say right now, God, God has so gripped my heart, God has so stirred my heart, maybe it's for a child, maybe it's for a family member, maybe it's for the 1.3 billion people on the planet who've never heard the name of Jesus. Maybe it's for the 140 million orphans around the world who have no one to call mom or dad. Maybe it's for the 60 million babies that have been, been, abo- been aborted over the last 40 years in the United States of America. Maybe it's for that neighbor who doesn't know Christ. Maybe it's for the church to thrive and prosper and glorify God like never before. I don't know what is your burden. Only you can answer that before the Lord. What do you do with that burden? God's given us a pattern here. Let me share a burden that we have as a church family. If you're part of this church, you know that one of the burdens we carry and one of the burdens we bear is this burden, and it's simply the burden that God has given us in His Word that every believer in every generation, watch this, has a responsibility to the generation that comes behind us. One of the burdens for our church is to see Psalm 145, verse 3 and 4 lived out that says this, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another. And she'll declare your mighty acts. No matter what age you are, no matter what role you play, every one of us have a responsibility to the next generation. That the gospel is transmitted, that we are teaching and training and equipping the next generation. What does that look like for us as a church? One of the purposes of this morning is to continue to hold out before you opportunities that we have as a church, that we are pursuing because of this burden we have. For the next generation to find their joy in Jesus. Because listen, I'll tell you, the next generation is searching for their joy somewhere. We want the next generation and this generation to find their joy in Jesus. I want to hold out to you again this morning because it's so important for us. We, we have the privilege of being part of a church that's developed something called a family discipleship plan. Family discipleship plan is not a curriculum. It's not a short-term lesson plan. The Family Discipleship Plan is a holistic discipleship strategy designed to equip families, caregivers, grandparents to own this responsibility that we have to the next generation. Right now, even as we speak, many parents are over at the outpost in what's called Parent Connect 
to equip you as parents to disciple your children in the home first. Many of you, when you leave here, I hope you're going to Parent Connect at 11 o'clock to continue to be equipped. But I want you to take a look at this short video of a testimony of one of your sisters here in this church of what the family discipleship plan as a tool has meant to her and her children. So go ahead and run that video. Hey, I'm Mindy Ball, and this is Knox. And we have been doing the family discipleship plan for a couple of weeks now in our house. Um, I can remember a couple of times using it with my kids, but one specific time is when <laughs> uh, my kids kept asking me, how big is God? And so I would compare him to mountains, and they would ask me, well, can God pick up a car? I'd say, yeah, God's that big. He's so strong, he just picks it up, no problem. But they would constantly ask me, how big is God? And, and no matter what object I could think of that was big, it was never enough to answer their question. Well, one day we sat down with Family Discipleship Plan, and the verse was Isaiah 66, 1, the earth is my footstool and the heavens are my throne. And so we got on, online and we looked up pictures of the world, and I said, that's what God just uses as a stool. He just kicks his feet up on there. That's how big he is. And right then and there, it cleared up everything for them of how big God really was. So instead of going straight to the Word, I was using all kinds of earthly understanding when I could have just opened up God's Word, and my question for them was answered right there. So I have two first graders and a four-year-old, so the Family Discipleship Plan has really helped us to stay focused on God's Word throughout the day and throughout our weeks. So I want you to see that testimony, real-life testimony of the power of the Family Discipleship Plan. Here's a burden we're going to pray for in just a few minutes as a church family, that we, we as a church family, would share that burden that we have a responsibility to share with the next generation. Another way we get to do this as a church family, I want to go ahead and make you aware of this. I'm going to show you another quick video, is every year we as a church have the privilege of hosting something called Impact. Uh, Impact is the largest student event in our entire area, in all of Upper East Tennessee. This year it'll involve somewhere around 15 churches, somewhere around eight, seven, 800 students. And we as a church get to host that for our community, and all of us get to be a part of that to invest in the next generation. So, if you will, I want you to turn your attention to the screen again. I want you to watch a short video about Impact, and then Laura's going to come up and share a couple things with us, and we're going to have a season of prayer. So go ahead and run this next video about Impact. Let's church, why don't you welcome Laura here on stage with us. Tell us. Maybe somebody's here. They have no idea what Impact is. Very quickly, in your own words, what is Impact? Um, so basically, Impact is a conference. It's by the local church, that's us, but it's also for the local church, still us, and the churches that join us from the community. Um, and it's just meant to help and equip students, middle and high school, to find their joy in Jesus and then to leverage their lives to make him known. Yeah. Personally, really quick, what has Impact meant to you over the past few years personally? Um, that's could take an hour to answer, but this is my 10th year being involved in Impact, so just as a student, I mean, the Lord has used it to teach me so many things just about himself, how big he is, and what it means to live in community with others, and then as a leader, how I can um, be that for students, how I can walk through life with students. Yeah, fantastic. So I'm here. I know a middle school or a high school student. Maybe they live in my home, or maybe they're a neighbor. What should I do to help get some of those students connected to Impact? Um, sign them up. So we have already right now 450 students and leaders from other churches. We have 12 other churches so far that have pre-registered. So we're getting pretty close to capacity. We're kind of filling up now. So sign up. The early bird registration ends today. It's $80. So you can sign up at impactyourlife.net or outside at the kiosk after both services. We'll have people there that can get you registered. Fantastic. So it's not just a student event. 
This is a church-wide event that we get to be a part of. So if I want to serve in some capacity, I don't know how many volunteers it takes, a lot. How many does it take? And then how can they be involved in serving an impact? Yeah, so impact doesn't happen without close to 200 volunteers. We have two different types, on-campus and off-campus. So off-campus, we need people to host groups of students in their homes, to transport them to those places. If you're a young adult or college student, we need community group leaders. On-campus, we call our volunteers door holders because they hold the door open for students to see Jesus. So we need people to start now helping build things and uh, for construction, set up, tear down, um, helping with traffic flow, serving food. Anything you can think of, we need volunteers to do it. Yeah, fantastic. So there's a lowdown on impact. Lord, thank you for that. Church, we let her know you appreciate her time being up here. So the point of this morning is to create, what's our burden? What's our burden individually and what's our burden as a church? And I want to call us to a season of prayer before we take our offering and we dismiss here in just a few moments. I know many of you are going to make your way over to Parent Connect. I want to ask you in this moment just to let's enter into kind of an attitude and a season of prayer. So would you just bow your head right there where you're seated? And I want us to pray about this burden that I've talked about. And specifically, you say, this is my church home. I'm a member and Trust Cities is my church. I want you to I want you to pray that God would give us a continued burden for the next generation specifically. Lord, Lord, burden my heart that I am to carry out what the Bible calls me to do. To tell, to disciple the generation that's coming after me. And maybe even ask, Lord, what does that mean for me as a parent? What does that mean for me as a volunteer? What does it mean for me as a part of this church? So take just a moment and Cry out to the Lord over that for just a moment right there in your seat. I ask you for just a moment to pray this way. I want you to pray for parents in our church, single dads, single moms, mom and dads, grandparents. I tell you, one of my prayers is that God would give grandparents a vision of what it can mean to disciple their grandkids, the massive impact that grandparents can make. I just want to take, ask you to take a minute that our, our parents here would would be equipped. The family discipleship plan is a tool to equip parents and that parents would own the responsibility, starting with me, to make disciples at home first. Would you pray that? Finally, we'll just ask you to pray this way, that God would continue to raise up volunteers and leaders in our church to work alongside parents in the equipping and the discipling of the next generation. Lord, raise up laborers. Raise up laborers. And Father, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for the living word of God that is penetrating to our hearts. God, I pray that we do not go through life unburdened about things that matter. God, I pray we don't go through our day and we are simply concerned but never burdened. God, create burdens in our heart that drive us to our knees, 
drive us to dependence and then action in the power of the Spirit for your namesake and for your glory. Pray for this church, Lord, that you use us as a beacon of light, Lord, to make disciples in the home first, in our community, the ends of the earth. And God, break our hearts to see the name of Jesus made much of. We love you. Praise you. And Father, I'm going to go ahead and continue and just pray for our time of offering. If our ushers will make their way down, I'm going to pray for this time of offering. If you will, go ahead and prepare for our season of offering now, and I'll pray for that, and then we'll close the service as Pastor Jeff comes. But let me pray for our offering, and let me invite you to go ahead and be ready for that. Lord, I thank you for everything that we have is from your hand. Thank you for the privilege of honoring you first in our finances. And God, I pray you multiply, multiply these gifts so that more and more and more people can be discipled and Jesus can be made known. In your name we pray, amen.